This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Welcome to the Resolution Foundation. And for those of you here for the first time, welcome uh, to those joining us online as well. Uh, we're here for uh, to host a, a great discussion on skills and impact investing with the UFI Voctech Trust. Uh, for those who are online or those who want to um, add questions in the room, you can use Slido and the hashtag Week of Voctech. Um, and I'll hand over to our head chair, Helen Gironi. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. We're delighted to have so many of you here and online as well. Um, so I'm really pleased to be chairing this session on impact investing in technology that addresses skills and employment challenges. You might ask why the interest in the, on this particular topic. Well, we think in, impact investing is a really important lever that we have in the UK to close the skills gap. Um, so as I'm sure you're aware, there are skills gaps in particular sectors such as construction, uh, care industry, for example, and in particular roles as well and in particular regions of the UK. And we think it's important both for people's development um, and the UK economy uh, that we have um, a, a chance to, to, to close the skills gap. We're starting to see a lot of uh, meaningful collaborations between uh, governments, enterprise, um, the further education colleges and investors. And we're really excited about developments in this area. Um, we think that uh, investment in, in VOCTEC and EdTech generally has slowed a bit recently because of the, the looming recession, but there is still a huge amount of activity and we're excited about this activity and understanding really where money is best placed and, 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 and where it's having most effect. So I'm delighted, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, I'm delighted to introduce the panel this morning. Um, Louise, if I could start with you and ask you to uh, introduce uh, yourself, your um, director of ventures at Resolution Foundation, so over to you. So yes, I lead the social investment work for the Resolution Foundation. We uh, are an independent think tank that uh, is a focus on improving the living standards of those on low to middle incomes. Our social investment work focuses on worker tech, so improving the world of work for those particularly in low paid and precarious work. We invest in early stages at uh, uh, pre-seed and seed stages in tech-enabled ventures deliver those impact improvements. Sanal Suri is co-founder and COO of Greenworks. Thank you. So I'm one of the co-founders of a new venture called Greenworks, which is tackling the green skills emergency by building the net zero workforce. So globally right now we need 30 million more green workers by 2030 if we're actually to deliver on net zero. And right now we're not on track to do that. So we're building a marketplace that activates future green workers and connects them with training providers and employers who have the opportunities for them. And beyond that, I'm on the board of Social Tech Trust, which is building a flexible VC fund, which I think covers some of the themes we're talking about today. Lovely, Sal. Thank you. Maria Wagner is partner at Berenger, the private equity firm. Welcome, Maria. Thank you. So Berenger is a venture capital fund and we invest across different sectors at the Series A stage and we've made a number of investments in EdTech as well. Lovely, thank you, Maria. Uh, Paul Moynihan is co-founder of Tasker. Paul. Yes, Tasker's mission is to increase access to skilled manual trades for women. So this is traditionally less than 5% of workers in these industries are female. Uh, in fact, in some specific, uh, specific skills, it's 0.5%. 
Um, it's a huge economic opportunity for women that they're currently missing out on. So uh, that's our sort of mission that we're on. Lovely. Thanks, Paul. And if I could just introduce myself, I'm Helen Gironi, Director of Ventures at UFI. And we have a £10 million fund that invests in platforms and technology, essentially, to close the skills gap. So if we could uh, now start on the, the discussion, um, I think as technology and the economy changes, the need for different uh, skills uh, adapts. And as we were talking about previously, there are a number of areas where there are significant skills gaps. Um, Maria, turning to you, first of all, what is the opportunity, do you think, for early stage impact investing or investing in new solutions to tackle future of work and employment challenges? So we, we've seen a lot of investments around the, the key trends that uh, are in society in general. So one of them is around hybrid and remote uh, working. Uh, so we've seen a lot of investment going to tech companies that enable that. For example, taking the admin and the hassle out of um, having, for example, workers in uh, in Asia or, or the US, so enabling companies to put the, the put those workers there with um, uh, via uh, the uh, by the uh, solutions that uh, the tech companies offer, so that uh, it becomes a lot more seamless uh, for a company to have remote workers across the world, also across uh, different regions of the UK as well. Um, the, the second trend that we're seeing is solutions around upskilling or cross-skilling and that can come for example from internally within the companies, uh, so companies offering broader learning uh, access to their own employees to enable them to have uh, to to continue building their learning and learn new skills, to become managers or to move to different departments. So enabling mobility within the the company and also uh, uh, increasing retention. And one investment that we made, and Helen uh, Felensman has also invested in, is uh, Learnably, for example, which. Uh, provides a marketplace for employees to access different types of resources to improve their skills on an ongoing basis. Um, but also um, we're seeing uh, upskilling and cross-skilling uh, uh, initiatives that uh, uh, span outside this particular company. So marketplaces, for example, that enable access to to workers in a, in a more um, efficient fashion. I think some of the Online marketplaces that have that, that exist today are, are quite large, but very very broad, and it's very difficult to find workers through those. So more specialized workplace uh, marketplaces that um, are much more efficient in linking companies to the right types of workers that they work that they want to access um, is another trend that we're seeing. Um, and then the third one is technologies that promote diversity or help support diversity, whether that's uh, technologies that measure the level of diversity or the pay gap or, or other, other issues that the companies want to measure, but also, for example, um, recruiting solutions that uh, uh, make recruiting more uh, even or more fair. So. For example, we, we invested in a company called Arctic Shores, which does gamified psychometric testing, um, and they discovered that 
um, first of all, you can you can play the game regardless of what your background is, uh, regardless of whether you went to like a a, a very um, uh, an institution that trained you for the psychometric test or whether you had no training because you just play a game and it assesses your personality and your fit to the role. Um, and solutions like this uh, kind of help uh, remove the unconscious bias that um, exists today in, in recruiting. Brilliant. Thank you, Maria. Um, I'd like now to turn to um, really a look at what innovations are getting funded. Um, there are many uh, that to try to secure funding and the success rate you know with with venture capital is has always been very low um, it is a very competitive um, environment um, so let's talk about what the successful companies the companies that are successful at raising funding have in common is there a common thread that they have um, Louise should we start with you so I think Marie's highlighted lots of the areas that are in demand and the context for that is um, particularly in the UK, a really tight labour market. We've talked about the sort of skills shortages in lots of areas of the economy and lots of those very long-standing skills gaps that we've had in the UK. But at the moment, we have particularly tight labour market, high employment and a very high vacancy rate. And that's putting pressure on employers to find new ways to source talent. So that includes looking at diversity gaps, looking at the talent they're not accessing through reasons of bias or reasons of historic patterns in those industries, mm. looking at ways in which you can bring people in through different types of training routes, alternative routes into different occupations mm. than they've looked at before. And I think it's also putting pressure on, on companies to invest in training their existing staff so they can upskill within the company. And we've seen a long-term trend in the UK of um, employees, the number of employees who receive training from their employer declining, particularly training that might help them to progress as opposed to just keep doing the, the role that they're doing. Um, so we're hopefully starting to see that reverse as the pressure uh, increases on employers to find, fill those vacancies in, in interesting ways. Um, and I think there's part of that challenge is going to be bringing people into the labour market who are dropping out of it. And we've seen today's figures the rise of, again in inactivity, the number of people who are not seeking work, who are not employed, who are just out of the labour market. And figuring out how to bring those people back in mm. um, is partly a health challenge. We know that long-term sickness is part of that, but also it's about confidence and motivation and feeling like there's a route in. So those kind of alternative pathways that can bring people into the labour market and start filling some of these vacancies, I think are gonna see um, more attention as well. This is a great example of um, an alignment between the commercial aspirations of companies wanting to hire people and the impact that is, is possible, you know, bringing people into work that otherwise might not have been um, looking for work. But there's a huge, I agree, there's a huge amount of support that needs to happen to make that possible. Yeah. I think that's where impact investing really works well, is where you can get those things to line up. You can find the employer or, or somebody who's, who's holding the, the cheque, who yeah. can pay for the innovation, can pay for new routes, their interests align with what we want to see in terms of um, you know, society and impact as a whole. Yeah. And whose role is it, do you think? I mean, is it government, is it uh, the companies, or is it something that, that everybody participates in? I think there's, there's, there's sort of skills gaps we need to acknowledge in terms of the country as a whole, and some of those, we know that you know, the state needs to be part of that 
education provision, and part of making sure that those um, training offers are available, that people can take advantage of them and can afford to uh, take up training. But also employers have, have a, a self-interest, but also a kind of bigger duty to kind of put training in place to, to get people equipped. And the, the higher that vacancy rate is, the greater that pressure is. But I think in general, there's, there's a role there for employers. And from an impact investing point of view, we see there's a, a gap in those who are, are addressing those really challenging aspects of the labour market, those bits, people who are furthest from it and bringing them in. And, and that's where you need some philanthropic capital, you need some uh, impact capital to help move those things to the point where they, they can become self-sustaining, where they get to the scale where employers and others can, can put that funding in. Yeah, that's a very good point. Maria, it would be great to get your your sort of view on this as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the the other angle of it is like how how good is the business? And for us, because we're a traditional venture capital fund, we we kind of assess the companies in the same way that we would assess any any other type of company. So we look for fast growth. Um, we look for good unit economics and good gross margins. So t the the businesses that are quite labor heavy to grow um, are, are, are a struggle for us, for example, to, to invest in um, uh, because you know, it, it's very difficult to keep hiring people to grow. So things that are more tech based or software based are much more attractive for us than uh, companies that are, for example, agencies or, um, or require a lot of uh, uh, people to deliver the service or the product, um, and then the you know the the last part of it is you know how how easy is is it for the company to expand outside its original uh, area? Uh, does it have to go city by city, or is it uh, the type of place that the type of business that can become global? Is it, for example, software becomes global? usually a lot more easily than some types of marketplaces that are quite local and you have to grow each um, uh, each marketplace on a, on a city by city or country by country basis. Uh, although things are changing very rapidly in that space and with the remote working marketplaces are also becoming more global these days. Uh, but these are the t type of things that we, we look at. No, that's interesting. And I, I think it's, it's true that more recently, um, there's been a lot of investment in non-capital intensive training and skills tools, but it's the capital intensive ones that have really struggled to get funding. Yeah. Um, I think from my perspective, uh, there's a huge sort of focus uh, on uh, businesses that can prove a return on investment for their clients. Uh, so one of our portfolio companies, Sonic Jobs, is seeing its it's, it's basically a, a platform that enables blue-collar workers to find career paths and jobs. They're seeing that their product is resonating in the US, particularly recently, because they've been able to, to, to uh, prove that ROI uh, for investors. I think uh, there's a big opportunity for tools that um, replicate what we've been doing manually, but improve it as well. So. I'm thinking of VR here, so managing to replicate those sort of one-on-one -on -one interactions that you have um, using technology, um, and but also capturing, for example, eye contact. So if you're preparing for an interview, for example, nudging the interview candidate that 
the eye contact has dropped off a bit, that kind of thing. I think there's a huge amount of potential there for uh, those companies to raise investment. Um, should we move on uh, to the next sort of point of discussion? Uh, so in 2022, we've obviously seen some headwinds in the economy, a very sort of different environment to uh, certainly six months ago. Um, businesses will fare differently, I, I imagine. Sunil, can you um, talk us through what you think the, the market outlook, how impact businesses will fare given the market outlook and what advantages um, impact businesses have in this area? Yeah, of course. Um, so I've read this in our recent experiences. So we're kind of a new venture that's been fundraising and building. I think the first thing to say, it's tough. Um, so one of our angel investors last week, who we've taken to calling Yoda, texted us that uh, basically survival is the only predictor of future success and money is the, the, the increases the likelihood of survival. And given that access to money for impact businesses is challenging, that kind of does shape the context. But Obviously, we know stats like VC investments down 50% year on year, but rather than labour on kind of the challenging dimensions, kind of drawing on our recent experiences, kind of four areas where we think kind of impact uh, businesses have advantages. And I think, firstly, the kind of growth at all costs mantra, which I think has been predominant for the last decade. I think we've seen that not to be as true as we thought. We went into this fundraising process thinking it'll be growth over revenues or growth before revenues. And actually, the story is it goes much more hand in hand with investors looking at the kind of fundamentals. And I do think that favours impact businesses a little bit more than the growth at all costs because many impact businesses, frankly, aren't going to be unicorns and have to think about those things right from the outset. I think secondly, purpose matters. So a stat that I've seen like on LinkedIn a bunch is from Docsend, do you use it to share decks? And they were saying the third most viewed slide on any company pitch deck at the moment is the company's purpose, which is kind of much higher than it used to be. And we know that, for example, young people are increasingly today's consumers and they care about kind of responding to social issues. We know that investors of all stripes are changing their thesis to kind of respond to kind of the wider purpose generation. I think reflecting particularly on the kind of purpose matters as an advantage for impact businesses, we found kind of hiring to be quite interesting that talented people will take kind of uh, lower salary expectations, that kind of thing, if they believe in the company's mission. So we're really seeing that play out. I think the third one, kind of reflecting my experience working for Catch-22 and yeah, other experiences where we were very much involved in public sector contracting, used to be that this was kind of seen as one area where kind of slow sales cycle, bureaucratic customer. But I think perception of kind of public sector contracting is changing. and. Social value is obviously taking time to be embedded and be accessible for impact businesses, but it's definitely an edge that impact businesses can kind of unlock. And I think it's one increasingly investors of all stripes, again, are kind of recognising as an edge. And I think lastly, um, impact businesses by their nature, I think focusing on underserved uh, communities, parts of the market that are left often by the side. And I think given that we're seeing saturation in a lot of kind of uh, areas, that is an edge that impact businesses can kind of exploit new markets, not that I like to use that language, but those are some of the advantages. 
Paul, does that does that resonate with you? I mean, obviously, your your platform is serving an underserved um, community. Is what Sunil said resonating with you? Yeah, completely. I think you know every study that's been done really shows that purpose driven businesses outperform the market. Um, so you know, and we see that we see in our in our customers and the research we do with them, the the purpose behind Tasker is what's driving them to spend their money with us, and we're mm -hmm. not we're not the cheapest solution to their problems, um, but we do come with a purpose, and I think that's you know that that is huge for us. And like Sunil said as well, you know, in, in terms of hiring, I think increasingly people are looking to, you know, to, to, to not get to their deathbeds and look back on their life and just see that they, you know, constantly drove shareholder returns. They, you know, they, they want to show they've done something else. So I think that's really important too. Absolutely. Good to hear. Um, do impact-driven investors bring something else to the table, do we think? Um, Paul, it would be great to get your view on this, um, obviously. Mm. Uh, you, you can say what you like, but given you've got two impact investors in there. <laughs> I'll choose my words very carefully. Uh, well, yes is, is obviously the answer. Um, so I, th I think there's, there's a few things to say. I think, I think firstly, um, you know, in our experience with impact investors, they, they tend to look through a much longer lens than, than some other investors. So you know, you're really able to form those kind of long-term partnerships um, and see a future of kind of both financial and non-financial assistance um, looking relatively secure, obviously, if you you know hit your milestones, you know you're not dealing with investors who are looking to come in at pre-seed and drop out of seed and you know kind of flip their money quickly. So I think that's one big advantage. I think for us, um, you know, in, in measuring impact has been kind of the biggest journey we've been on, and it's such a minefield. You know, I think good impact business is obviously it's commercially driven. How you measure your commercials is very well established. It's relatively straightforward. How you measure impact is like where do you, where do you start? So I think that's been one of the biggest things for us is um, is, is utilising the connections with our investors and their connections. So you know, I mean, Resolution Foundation have recently employed someone to come in and support their portfolio in defining, you know, what is the impact we're measuring, how are we going to measure it, how are we going to, you know, what questions are we asking, when are we going to ask them? Mm -hmm. So that that's been huge for us. Mm -hmm. That's great to hear. So I'd now um, like to turn to what impactors, impact investors in skills technology look for. Um, you know, we do have a, a slightly different lens, Louise. Um, it would be great to get your, your take on this. Um, well, I mean, we're looking for some of the same things as, as Maria and others are looking for in terms of the, the business, the growth potential, the potential to scale the nature of the business, but also scale impact and reach large numbers of people. Um, in terms of our impact priorities, we're looking for, in the skill space, um, how are we going to reach the people who most need this? Where is the, the greatest need and is it possible to access that? We talked about people who are out of the labour market, if they're not in skills and training already, if they're not in the labour market, how are you going to find and connect with those people? Mm. What's, the, what's the gap you're trying to fill in and is that achievable? Mm. And then is there a, a convincing reason why this type of skills or training offer is going to make the difference. It's great to put people through stuff, but we know that some types of training are more effective than others in terms of improving people's prospects or improving people's earning potential. And so sometimes it's great to give people those resources, but it may or may not actually be helpful to them in terms of their career and, and where they, what they get out of work. Yeah. So we're looking for some of that thinking in there as well as, you know, things like alignment and impact. So how do we do we believe the founder motivation around this? Are they aligned to this impact mm. journey? Mm. Sometimes it is a harder road. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes it does mean 
putting in more time around the impact thinking and that kind of long-term perspective on things and, and are they willing to engage with that and, and able to kind of uh, stick with that process. Um, so that, that's a risk in some areas that you could serve a couple of different markets and one might be uh, more lucrative than others. Uh, we're looking for as much as possible markets where those two things go together, where the impact and the scale come from, from serving the, the, the neglected market. Yeah. Um, so and, and then in terms of kind of where the potential is, I think things like we talked about diversity, closing diversity and uh, gaps in, in terms of skills, um, routes out of precarious work. We've seen in today's labour market figures that um, the inactivity and, and, um, uh, and those, those, the number of people on zero hours contracts is, is up again. Mm. So, so what are the, some of those niches where people aren't getting what they need from the existing skills and training offers and, and see if we can zero in on those. Brilliant. Stanard and Paul, I'm interested in your perspective on this. Obviously, you've talked to a lot of investors, both from the impact angle and um, sort of more commercial investors. Do you see a big difference in sort of what they're focusing in on and what, and what they're asking you? Uh, yeah, I'm reflecting on our experience because the ultimate outcome we're measuring ourselves against are, is can we put more people into green jobs? So there's been this kind of lockstep between kind of the KPI and the impact that we're driving towards. I think what we, I think we've been pleasantly surprised by the level of kind of interest, essentially things like how do we like acquire the people who are going to use our product. Mm -hmm. Even though they're not impact questions, they end up being impact questions because it's essentially how are you going to get people from different parts of the labour market to come on board to your marketplace. So yep. sometimes it's not asked as an impact question, but yep. they are kind of quite impact answers. And I think that point I made before about kind of um, kind of government edge that impact businesses have, you know, it's 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 just different language that's so seen as like an advantage, but it is kind of the impact piece. For example, how are you going to work with the Department of Work and Pension mm. to get kind of users and job seekers through your marketplace? Yeah, a very com very commercial questions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But still, kind of impact. It can be twisted into kind of the impact lens. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think good a good impact business is as attractive to a run of the mill. VC as, as they are to an impact VC and in our conversations you know, I think what we've seen is that perhaps more you know traditional investors who aren't focused on impact see what we're doing and, and, and not to put it in a negative light but they look at how that might you know that you can exploit that purpose you know for the for the commercial gain and the impact is the nice to have on the side yeah um, that, that's definitely what we found okay Interesting. there's a, an audience question sort of related to this um, which is uh, what are the green or red flags or speaking with investors, whether they're impact or otherwise, for. <laughs> oh, um, is this being recorded? Um, <laughs> um, we had a, a situation recently where we were talking to an investor about our um, our current committed investors who are impact investors, and he started referring to them as charity investors, mm. and that was that was quite the red flag. Mm. <laughs> It's such a basic one, but the green flag is like, are they engaged with what you're saying? Are they, are they interested? And then uh, on the opposite side, if they're disinterested. So we definitely had one investor during a pitch call who was definitely playing around on his phone. <laughs> it was a bit of a red flag. But I honestly think, like, oftentimes the, they engage with the content, but it's like, are you actually, do you buy into what we're doing? And yeah. I think that's kind of quite subjective, but you do get that sense from a call. Quite interesting. 
Rebecca. Uh, when we were looking at setting up the fund, one of the bits of feedback we got at the time was that people start off saying they're looking for impact, but ultimately they end up looking only at the financials and the impact kind of gets pushed out of the... It's sort of a nice... It's an interesting thing at the start, but once the investor's in, they're only really interested in the financials. So we were obviously very clear that we put impact first. But I'd be interested in the panel's view on whether they, they feel that that's still, that's still going on and there's still a sort of a sense that... Um, kind of, there, there, there is a danger on the other end of the process that, that kind of the, the impact interest is moving away. Um, and yeah, I think that's, I've forgotten the second bit of my question, so I have to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, I can take it. Um, we, we've quite invested with impact investors, and I think in a way we're aligned in the KPIs that we're looking at because. Um, they're looking for scale because they want to have as much impact as possible with the lowest cost possible because you want to you want to minimize your cost so that you can impact more people basically uh, so the and that's aligned with any 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 kind of KPIs that a traditional VC would look at they would look at okay can you scale this business and can you reach profitability uh, so in a way, the reasons we're looking at those KPIs may be different, but at the end of the day, uh, a successful, impactful business will have the same characteristics of a traditionally commercial business, scale and profitability or, or ability to survive in a way, right? Mm -hmm. So ability to make profits eventually on its own. Just to add to that, so I could definitely come from like the impact investing kind of world and kind of social venture ecosystem and then engaging with kind of generalist commercial minded VCs and just seeing how they kind of strip apart the business and not necessarily look at the kind of the impact lens but actually look at it devoid and try to look as objectively as possible to the different parts of it. And actually it's an education because I think sometimes you can come at it from the impact lens and that's really important. So for us, we want to have the impact investor side by side with the kind of the VC. But that analysis of just looking at the fundamentals is actually, there's a lot of uh, value there. And I think your mm -hmm. point about kind of, you know, going back to that thing of like what predicts future success, it's survival and actually having some of that kind of r rigorous and ruthless yeah. analysis can be kind of, I think a great boon for impact businesses if they can get it. Yeah, and maybe that's the difference between impact investing and traditional charities, right? Um, because in a traditional charity, maybe you don't need to become profitable eventually because you will always get grant money. Uh, but with impact investing, the business needs to eventually become on its, you know, run on its own and, and have enough scale to impact enough people. Um, so maybe that's maybe that's the main difference. I don't know. You guys are experts in impact investors, so you can probably and talk I think more that's to where that. 
there's a, there's a duty on us as impact investors to choose those KPIs, working with the companies carefully to yeah. figure out what we're looking for in terms of impact and make sure it lines up really well with stuff that's going to drive the business forward, that's going to get to scale and and making sure that it's not seen as a bolt-on or an th- onerous thing mm. that you have to do on the side of running a business, but it's integral to what you're doing. And, and so we try and scale what we expect in terms of impact measurement and, and ambition alongside with where the business is at and what they need to be doing from a business point of view right now. And so crafting an impact strategy that works alongside, works with business and promotes whatever the, the next business goal is, I think is part of the, the onus on us as impact investors to make those two things work smoothly. Absolutely, I agree. You know, the, the KPIs that we look at are generally sort of a quality metric, so how the product is perceived by users, which is obviously hugely beneficial from a commercial aspect. The scale question, you know, how many users are you reaching in a meaningful way? Um, I think where there is possibly a divergence is where a company is uh, serving several different groups, some of which are impactful, uh, seen as impactful, and and some aren't. And and that's the only sort of uh, examples I think I've come across where there is Sometimes if you're, you know, if you're selling to or trying to reach hard to reach individuals, mm. it is more expensive um, and it is more difficult. And if uh, you, you know, a company doesn't sort of persevere at it or is selling it into other users that uh, acquire the product more readily, there is a, um, mm. a conflict there, slightly conflict in terms of you know, future direction. That's yeah. a really interesting question. Uh, staying uh, to your point, um, so uh, I- impact is tricky because on the one hand, it sometimes it takes longer to manifest, but also impact-driven businesses can be slower growth because it's more difficult to reach those um, beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and sort of a very practical example is that there's a there's a difference um, between a platform that um, provides career readiness solutions with with the ambition to um, increase career outcomes in the longer term mm-hmm. versus a platforms that gets people job ready today to get mm-hmm. that job today and sort of there's the KPI the the, the um, um, the measurement of the KPI are on very different time scales yeah and so based on that and, and the argument you just made around sort of taking time to reach beneficiaries which are f- maybe farther removed from the labor market is there an argument here for p- patient investing or instead of impact investing which ultimately still is aligned impact and financial KPIs, but actually with recognition that a 10-year return strategy of the traditional VC funds mm. is potentially not the best fit to grow the ecosystem of impact ventures. No, it's, it's, it's a really good point, and I would agree. I mean, I think a lot of um, impact funds are, are more patient, uh, but I, I don't know how long the, their investment horizon is on paper, and maybe there is a, a mismatch there. I think it's a, a real challenge for for early stage venture in general, as well as for impact, that there aren't really good solutions for things that don't fit that hockey stick 10x return profile that VC is built around. Um, and I think there are some emerging models of, of what a different form of patient capital might look like, some more evergreen funds and things like that. But, um, but yeah, I think we do need more patience in the system to allow those things to, to come forward and to, to look for longer term um, solutions, but I also think that um, aiming for a long-term goal is great, but you still need to short-term 
thing to work. You still need a short-term incentive to be people to sign up, to be able to use the tool, whatever the immediate priority is. So I think it's finding interesting ways of tying those things together so you've got long-term effects but mm -hmm. you've also got a short-term rationale for why people should should get on with it and use it now and exactly. that's that's a real challenge exactly and indications that it's working yeah that there is progress being made to draw in the capital to, to head for that longer-term goal yeah. yeah just i don't say what you're talking about like patient investment so i definitely put my perspective on kind of impact investors and the kind of prevailing thesis of kind of unicorn hunting with like VCs, I do think impact investment is the place where alternatives, uh, models and modes of investment are going to come from. So I think as well as looking for like different ventures to invest in, i.e. impact business, I also think it's incipient to kind of test these new models, even if there's a high risk and long term, longer to pay off to kind of yeah. see how, how, see how it could be different. Definitely. I mean, we're, we're a VCT and we're patient capital because the funds are basically evergreen mm. and it does make a difference in the types of businesses that we're able to invest because we don't have a deadline to exit so we can take a long-term view. Yeah. Hi, um, and to this point, um, and I didn't know actually you were evergreen so actually that's a very important point because the mathematics of a VC fund just doesn't work with impact investing if you're looking to have the maximum impact, you could very well decide that your business model is a social enterprise that reinjects all of the profit into the business to scale it, grow it, and that is not going to please your uh, shareholders or your VC investor that needs these commercial returns. And so I think there's way more nuance um, on that spectrum of investors and types of investors. So you've got, and how I differentiate it is investing for impact, investing with impact, and investing for financial returns only. And so you've got a whole sort of range of different types of investors. So now my question for the impact investors is, as we know, investing in s at such an early stage is, is very risky, and you've got um, losses. So that's where your VC fund was. Well, we've done the math. Every single company we invest in needs to have the ability or to, to have the potential to return the whole fund. Mm -hmm. Hence the unicorn hunting and all of that. Um, spray and pray eventually um, approach. Now the impact investor says, well, we care about the impact. And so how do you mitigate the risk of some of these ventures uh, going bust, and, and how do you survive as an investor as a result? So, Louise, <laughs> do you want me to? Yes, you start. I mean, I think, I think from my perspective, it's a very similar story from the commercial perspective to the impact perspective. I think we, you know, we invest in a, a broad uh, number of, a high number of companies to mitigate the risk, so you've got lots of um, individual investments um, no you know the, the same kind of risk prof profile as a, as a commercial uh, venture capital fund um, that you're you know the, the three or four investments that really take off are going to provide the return overall for the fund and then there are going to be many that don't survive and or just don't do particularly well um, there is probably a little bit of a, a trade-off in terms of overall performance of the fund, um, but we're, we're still aiming for 
the same commercial returns as a, a commercial venture capital fund. Does that, does that answer your question? Yes. But would you yeah. invest in a company that has an exit in the hundreds of millions and not in the billions? Okay? I mean, I think, yeah, the variation, even within commercial venture capital, the variation returns is really high, right? So you could get your unicorn out of it, but the vast majority of venture capital funds don't get that. Obviously, some are aiming for that more than others, and there are different strategies in that space. So I think, Helen's right, we're still aiming for taking risk across the portfolio. I think some of the mitigators on the impact side are looking for, we know that we're going to accept that there are going to be failures. So at a very early stage businesses, we know that there are going to be failures and people are going to, to not make, make it work. That's the risk we're accepting. I think one of the things we try and do is make sure we incorporate as much learning as possible and also look for ways for that, the impact and the learning that's created through those ventures failing still gets propagated. So how can we maybe hand the IPA off to someone else? Can we write up what was learned about this? Can we incorporate that into other people's ventures so that the impact story is still one that, that contributes to a wider sense of progress. But I think we still want businesses that will grow very rapidly to serve a huge number of people because that's how we can create impact by reaching lots of people. I think we have looked at stuff that could be very impactful in depth but reach a very small number of people. It's very hard to fund those through this model because if the, if the overall group of people affected is very small, it's very hard to see how you're going to scale, even if the impact for each individual is big. And that's really where pure philanthropy needs to play more of a role. I think impact investing can only do so much. You can't solve all of the problems through this route. It's just one of the tools in, in the toolbox. Although I, I think if, you know, just picking up on your last point there, Louise, if you're looking at really deep, impactful businesses, but the scalability is more questionable, I think there's still a rationale for investing if you can prove to other people that it's worth setting up businesses like that because you can turn a profit. You're not mm -hmm. going to get that stellar growth, but you are proving a business model. Yeah. Um, so there's the you know there's the impact sort of from that. There is definitely an element of of we're trying to affect not just the individual business we invest in, but the system as a whole. We're trying to prove the scalability, the, the viability of some of these different models so that they get, do become more widely adopted and more uh, backable. So I think there's definitely a role for um, supporting things that, that, as you say, may not ever get to that scale, mm. but demonstrate a new way of doing things that might then propagate into to other areas. Absolutely. Great. That's been a fascinating discussion. Um, what does success look like for venture investing in this space and what isn't getting funded? Maria, can I turn to you on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said before, like we're a commercial VC, so our success is just the same return uh, KPIs that we have for other investments, so uh, basically cash-on-cash uh, cash returns. Um, uh, we, don't, we don't have any impact KPIs in terms of that. Uh, and uh, what we... I think the... the, the the types of businesses that, you know, wouldn't wouldn't get funded by a traditional VC are the the types of business that we talked about before. So, for example, uh, businesses that will not scale fast enough, uh, probably, uh, that uh, will require a lot of capital to scale, um, and are are very manual and require a lot of um, uh, hiring of people in order to deliver a product or a service uh, which affects the pro prospects of the company to get to profitability. 
Um, yeah, I think those are those are the main the main areas that we see. Brilliant. Thank you. Would anybody else like to contribute I mean, to that question? I think so the rationale for us existing as impact investors in space is because we believe some of the stuff we're backing wouldn't otherwise get funded. That's our um, the purpose of, of having that capital available. So I think there is still a tendency for um, lots of skills and employment ventures to focus on the remote workforce, the people in desk-based jobs, the people in professional occupations who can work from other countries, who can work from anywhere. Um, and our focus is on the bottom half of the workforce in terms of pay, um, in terms of occupations where you do have to turn up in person um, and do skilled work or manual work or, or you know, need to be you know, on a site. And I think there is still a gap there in terms of partly just recognising what the challenges of those um, industries are, partly because the people who found businesses tend not to have experience of those jobs that they can bring to, to bear, and we're looking at ways we can challenge that. But also because actually we've seen in, in some of those industries uh, it's very, they're very slow to adopt innovation. So if you're selling into the employers in those sectors, that can be a challenge too because they are less able to absorb innovation and to engage with smaller companies. And so there can be real challenges in terms of getting the, the sales pitch across and just really long sales cycles and stuff being in there too. So I, we think those are backable because that's why we're here. But also I think it's, those are some, there's some really big headwinds in some of those spaces to try and even if we can see really good pathways to improving things. Sometimes the structure of the industry, the structure of the employer makes it really challenging to, to make sales in that environment. Mm -hmm. So I think there are interesting opportunities for partnering and for, for adding impact solutions to existing solutions in those spaces to try and, and, and make progress in those areas. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think who you sell to, whether it's uh, schools, uh, you, know, the, you know, the hospitals, or if you're selling to central government, for example, or any other type of buyer that has really long sales cycles, really high price sensitivity, or really strong negotiating power, uh, that makes it really difficult for a commercial VC to sometimes take the risk. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that's possibly where a, a gap is. Yeah, and there's, there's potential for impact in those spaces yeah. because of those, the types of employers and the types of scale that they're at, but that's, they yeah. also have a lot of challenges. So. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's interesting. So whether you know, the different investors can play a part. Um, how effective are the emerging models being used in impact investing? Um, we are seeing, you know, a, a change in this area. Sonal, can you answer that question? So, I'd probably start by flipping it a little, which is kind of how are current investment models kind of supporting impact businesses, and so like kind of wider context, zooming out, kind of rapid advances in technology, the dissemination of this, that technology, providing tools to kind of tackle social challenges. But many of the companies that are kind of tackling social issues are currently overlooked. And we kind of, I think through this conversation, discussed how kind of established models of investing, whether it's looking for unicorns, uh, whether it's the perception that impact businesses don't generate enough ROI or structural kind of inequalities within investment processes don't necessarily serve impact businesses well. Um, and despite that, probably some challenges around kind of that replication of VC models within impact investing. So. So at Social Tech Trust and other funds that are kind of interested in, there's kind of the advance of flexible VC, which kind of sits in the middle between the kind of equity investment and the debt focus investment. And I'm, I think they're pretty exciting because essentially 
just in short, kind of what a flexible VC looks like. You can generate the returns from revenues and or equity. And I think crucial difference is you can shape that with the founder so they themselves can help decide what's right in terms of the investment path for their desired outcome and their business rather than the business being built to repay the investment. So it's pretty exciting. I think in relation to some of the points in the audience, I think it allows kind of broader consideration of different business models. It's more likely to take on kind of diverse founders. Um, the social mission can be protected potentially better. Um, and then that construction of a more balanced portfolio is possible, which isn't reliant on kind of the big exits that you're talking about. That, all that being said, these models are emerging, as you say, and I think there's going to take time to prove them. But I think the status quo isn't quite working. Mm. I think that's fair to say. Mm -hmm. So I, that's how I'd kind of tackle that. And are you talking about sort of revenue share agreements? That exactly, kind of okay. exactly. And there's been a lot of uh, these in the US, and I think it's a relatively kind of newer thing within kind of UK and Europe. Yeah. And have you seen it working well in the US? Is Seen a couple, so Calm Fund, a couple of ventures that they've backed have kind of really worked well. Um, and then I've started to see a couple of investments in the UK, but again, it's still quite early to yeah. kind of see how it plays over. And I don't think you can really say whether it's fully kind of working until we kind of see how it stretches over that 10 year time period. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Interesting. We've got some questions on the, from the audience on Slido if we want you to Lovely. go to those. Fantastic. So we had one about. Uh, is the predicted recession going to slow down skills investing? <laughs> we will be hearing more about this, I'm sure, on Thursday from the Chancellor. It's a, it's a very good question. I mean, I think there are um, a lot of funds out there that have raised money um, and uh, will continue to invest and, and see perhaps more opportunity um, and lower valuations than we were looking at sort of, you know, six months ago or a year ago. Uh, so it'll be a mixed picture, but then there are some funds that are sort of retrenching and um, have found it more difficult to, to raise funds in order to invest. So some, some will invest and some won't, um, but hopefully there'll be enough money to go around to, to back the businesses that, that really need to be backed. We think there'll be more of a focus uh, in 2023, larger fundraisings, uh, so a focus in on you know, investors joining together to join in larger fundraisings and the smaller fundraisings finding it more difficult to get away. I mean, we're looking at the latest pitch book Q3 data and actually uh, the level of, of the volume of investing in the angel and seed and early stage rounds hasn't dropped off that much. It's mostly, it's almost actually flat to 2021. And even the split between new deals and follow-ons is pretty much similar to 2021. It, the, the biggest drop-off has been in Series B, Series C onwards, uh, which are closest to, to IPO. And because the IPO market is, uh, has declined, uh, that's where the, most of the um, holdbacks have been so far. Um, and even in terms of valuations, uh, the, the valuations seem to be at least flat to 2021 at the earlier stages, uh, although the markups are declining uh, since Q1. So I think we'll see more impact on the valuations next year. But I just want to 
I don't want to give the impression to founders that the, were, the world is so dire out there and there's um, no possibility of investing because I don't think it's true, uh, especially at the earlier stages. Um, at Berenger, we're incredibly busy and we have a number of deals in terms and I think we'll end the year almost investing almost as much as last year. Um, things may slow down further in 2023, it is possible, but um, it's, it's, not, it's not as bad as, as, it, as it may seem from the outside. And I think 2021 was an uh, abnormally exuberant year and we're almost coming down to more sensible levels. Yeah, I think it comes back to that question in terms of individual ventures of who they're selling to. And we know that public sector is going to uh, have some real pressure on budgets in the coming year. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you're looking, you know, there's still structural skills shortages. There's still a lot of need yeah. for filling vacancies in the, the private sector as well as the public sector. So there's, there's, there's those, those underlying pressures are still going to be there. And I think, you know, as impact investors, um, we see it very much a core part of our mission, really, to step in and fund where it's not possible for, for other investors to fund. So to continue very much uh, on the pathway next year of, of, of continuing to invest. Yeah, I think from a founder's perspective, we've not really seen a change from the impact investors. Mm. You know, I think because they do look on such a longer lens mm. that this is you know a standard market blip that we go through. Um, mm. So you know, I think there's probably a little bit of pressure on the valuation side of things, but yeah. actually in terms of appetite to invest, we've not seen from, from the impact investors, we've not seen a change. Yeah, interesting. We have another question on uh, impact investing. Uh, how does an impact investor do impact due diligence? <laughs> Interesting. I, I, I'd say very similar, in a very similar way to um, a purely commercial investor. Um, I, we, we do a fair amount of due diligence. It does tend to be quite light touch. We focus in on a few areas such as uh, discussions with, uh, conversations with a company's clients or pipeline clients, um, and then focusing on any particular areas where we have sort of questions. Um, I think as part of our sort of discussions with um, management when they um, when we first meet them, we cover off a lot of the, you know, who are you reaching, how are you reaching them questions, what, what is the, the, the need, the user need here. Uh, so we've generally become quite comfortable with those um, discussions, those answers, by the time that we approve an investment. So it tends to be more on the sort of commercial side post-committee uh, approval. Yeah, and in terms of our impact focus, we're looking a lot for alignment with the founders and, and motivation and how well we feel like the values line up so that we're going to mm. be able to work together uh, as the thing develops. And also that the, the core of the business, the business plan lines up with the impact so that we're looking for places where future development of the business might be in tension with impact. If there are going to be choices and trade-offs to be made along the way, where might those arise? What's going to happen? What are the factors that are going to feed into that? Mm. Um, how can we see that commitment to impact demonstrated through user research, through working with the, the workers, the learners that they're trying to reach, they're understanding those groups, mm. um, understanding what the challenges are of those issues. So kind of getting into the, the detail of what it means and, and whether the, the business stacks up in terms of how addressing some of those challenges and, and the pathway to, between them. Brilliant. Any more questions, Louise? Do you want to go to the innovation? 
to the other questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do we think is the best, um, sorry, the next big innovation that's going to change the landscape of skills and employment in the future? And that's a question for everybody. So if I could turn um, first to you, Paul. Yeah, well, as I can maybe speak for the, the sort of the skilled trades and, and sort of more construction sector, I think you know VR is um, is really proving quite a useful, well, hugely useful training tool, um, and seeing it applied in in various scenarios from you know health and safety training to now actually you know training for real on the on, on the sort of tools, skills, jobs, mm. um, and actually you know, for our for some of our um, stakeholders, so for women in trade. You know, there, are, there are many stories of how they, they, they don't often get on in a, in a sort of formal educational setting because of discrimination. So, you know, to, to be able to, to have kind of VR training that is perhaps done remotely um, is, you know, is a huge benefit. But that's, that's something that we're seeing more of. Absolutely. We're, we're seeing a huge amount of that as well. We're seeing um, a lot of uh, VR applications in healthcare in particular, in construction, um, and some really... It's, it seems to be an industry that's changing quite rapidly. It's becoming uh, much more uh, user-friendly and the quality of the product is, has really changed in the last year, I found. Mm. Yes, same. We're seeing, a, we're seeing a lot of interest in, in VR and different applications uh, in kind of low-skilled roles, but also more high-skilled roles like surgeons or you know, tough negotiators or business... Uh, business uh, 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 um, uh, developing the right business skills. Um, I think the other element of it is, uh, you know, um, having avatars to to replace um, people in situations where we can't get the the with us uh, significant labour shortages. For example, at home nurses for elderly people. For example, what if you had an avatar that almost felt they were in person with that, with that uh, 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 patient. And then the other element of it is uh, hybrid conference solutions. So I think because of a lot of uh, working now is either done, uh, there's options always to be offline, but also online, but uh, the conference tools only um, don't, don't enable that hybrid environment. So if the people, that are online now could somehow be present in the room that would have a very different feeling both for them and, and for us. So uh, we're looking at those solutions as well. Fascinating, thank you. Um, I think from, from our perspective, I've you know as, as I've mentioned, we're looking at a lot of um, VR tools. We're also quite keen to invest in uh, solutions that help um, upskill people in the green economy. Um, and for sort of informal work, so sort of gig, gig work as well, we're seeing a huge um, need uh, for individuals in this area and a number of sort of platforms coming through, um, but we expect more in, in 2023. I was going to say VRAR, but it's been stolen <laughs> away from me. Um, I think it's fairly obvious why uh, that has kind of huge advantages. It's a shame the conversation's been kind of dominated by the Zucks metaverse. But I think the interesting thing about VR AR, it's not that new, but I think the key change is that mass adoption of the technology is kind of closer than ever. So you're gonna have like Apple reality out next year. To add another one into the mix on the fly, because everyone's saying VR AR is a bit boring. Um, basically, 
the, the idea that we're overloaded with information and how do you kind of learn about something when you're drowning in resources. So I spoke to a great founder last week tackling a problem I really care about and it's super unsexy but it's essentially giving tools to communities to assemble knowledge themselves. So it's essentially like mm. Wikipedia for Gen Z um, and that stuff isn't kind of uh, mm. seen as super innovative but I think it's going to be more and more needed and essentially I think we're going away from the era of kind of mass social network to more niche communities and I think tooling around that can really, from what I've seen, can really advance skills and kind of learning at all ages and all different demographics. Yeah, so I was going to say something similar. There's, there's huge power in data, I think, in this space and in understanding what this landscape of moving between skills and training and jobs and occupations looks like and we know it's a really complicated space. Um, but I think being able to find communities within that that can help support learning and development and being able to just navigate through that pathway in a way that's personalised to what you've already done, what you're doing. Um, one of our ventures, Ikigai Data, is uh, building some stuff in this space. But having really good data about skills and how those link to occupations, how those link to preferences and demands, I think there's lots of potential there that isn't right, quite kind of connected together yet. And I think that's, that's an area for development. Fabulous, thank you. I think we've pretty much reached the end of our, our discussion, so thank you all for your input on that. Um, and just to, to briefly summarise, really, uh, what we've, we've covered today. Um, so we've looked at uh, which opportunities are getting, are receiving investment. Uh, so there's, you know, a huge focus on, on hybrid working, for example, and, and VR. Um, we've looked at... Um, what uh, companies, what successful companies have in common that have managed to, to raise funding. And we've looked at those that managed to sort of address the, the return on um, investment for clients um, and really sort of focus on, on the demand side and, and what that looks like. Um, we then looked at the uh, economic headwinds that we're facing and uh, seeing a, you know, how uh, impact businesses are going to survive. Uh, and do well in that in that um, in the new economic conditions and businesses with purpose, uh, with public sector revenues, um, and and high growth, uh, we think are going to do particularly well. We then looked at what impact investors have to bring to the table, and that was a, a fascinating uh, discussion. Um, and the the benefits of having impact investors and, and having a purpose on being able to retain. Uh, clients and being able to retain staff, for example. Uh, we then looked at, at patient capital and how sort of in investment from impact investors can be seen as, as more patient capital. But thank you so much for joining our discussion today. It's been um, absolutely fascinating. Um, Louise, over to you. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, we, you should check out the rest of the week of Voctech. Uh, and weekofvoctech.co.uk for all the other events that are happening this week. And we have another Resolution Foundation Worker Tech event next Monday. You can register for that on our website. And also, if you want to know what the looming recession might look like, uh, we will be publishing our um, analysis of the autumn statement on Friday. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.